Welcome to How Not to DM. I'm your host, Derek. Thanks for joining me on my quest to interview the very best dungeon masters on this plane of existence. This episode's guest is the talented Ben, known as Never Not DM. Ben is a homebrew content creator who started off creating free weekly items for anyone to use. He decided to delve into publishing content a while ago and has a current Kickstarter campaign going for his latest, greatest work. Ben has some great insight into publishing your work for the first time, and from the DM side, making sure you and your table have aligned expectations. Enjoy! Hi everybody, my name is Never Not DM, also known as Ben, and I'm a content creator for Dungeons & Dragons 5th Edition. I got into D&D actually in college, mostly by accident. I had been a professional Magic the Gathering player, or I say professional, but using air quotes. I traveled across the country playing Magic the Gathering and had some success for about a year and a half in college. But the grind got to be too much, and I decided to take a step back. I was working at Barnes & Noble part-time during the summer. I was pretty lonely. You know, most of my friends were professional magic players or, you know, tournament grinders like me, and I wasn't getting to see them as much because I wasn't going to these tournaments. So while I was working at Barnes & Noble, this girl came in. She said she was looking for a Dungeons & Dragons book. I helped her find it. I asked her some questions because I'd always been kind of interested in Dungeons & Dragons, though I never played. And she said she was a part of my college's gaming group. And, you know, I sold her the Dungeons and Dragons book. I thanked her for her time. And then I went back and told my girlfriend about the day. And she said, well, you should join that Dungeons and Dragons group. You're looking for some new friends. This seems like a great way to do it. So I decided to join. And funnily enough, that girl, her name was Emma, actually was my first dungeon master, completely coincidentally. So she, it was her first time DMing and my first time playing. And... After two sessions, not only did I love Dungeons and Dragons, but that I wanted to be a DM. And that was the role that I wanted to take. So since basically since that time, I've always been the Dungeon Master since then. So hence the name Never Not DM. Yeah. So that's a really cool story, actually. You sold her the book and then she was your DM. Yeah. Completely coincidence that there were tons of different campaigns being offered in the club. And I just happened to choose that one to be a part of. And I showed up the first day of the campaign. We like, there was a study room. There were like six other people there. And I was like, I recognize this girl, Emma, right? We met at Barnstable. She was like, Ben? It was very weird. It was kind of a surreal moment. <laughs> I love that. All right. So you kind of alluded to the fact that you switched to being a DM really quickly. What was your very first DMing experience like? What kind of adventure did you run? So my very first DMing experience was running a one-shot that inevitably turned into a two-shot in a homebrewed world that I was creating. I wanted to set up some lore and some background for the campaign that I wanted to run. So I decided to just run a, run a one-shot and it went okay. I learned a lot of lessons about balancing and about how to build a one-shot and how to build encounters. I created this super amazing, incredibly cool encounter with a warlock up in the tower. And then I had a Gloomstalker Ranger from a player who loved to min-max and he one-shotted, dealt over a hundred points of damage at level nine to my warlock NPC through mage armor and shield. 
I might add, over 100 points of damage, and this amazing boss encounter that I created never happened. <laughs> so I learned about, you know, how to improv, how to fly by the seat of my pants and how to balance the counter. So while I think it was a success, everybody had fun. And at the end of the day, that's what matters. It was definitely a big learning experience for me as a first time DM to try to run this really ambitious castle heist one shot. It ended up going for like 12 hours. It was not a one shot. It was more like a three and a half shot and that sounds like a real baptism by fire to have a min max or just destroy your boss at the end of it too yeah i i actually don't personally have a problem with min maxing players a lot of my players like to min max and i'm okay with that they're good role players as well but it was definitely a wake-up experience for me that i need to design to the players that i have and not to the imaginary players in my head Mm-hmm. valuable lesson Uh, That kind of leads right into our next topic, which is what are some of the worst mistakes you've made as a DM and what lessons did you learn? I would say one of the worst mistakes I made as a DM was during this quest arc. One of the players had actually been kidnapped by a necromancer who had been harassing the party across two arcs. This necromancer had been a pretty big bad for the party. And then during the siege of a small town, she actually captured one of the party members and took them to a volcano layer in the mountains. And so the party is going to rescue them. And while they're rescuing them, I have various wilderness challenges for them to face. And at one point, one of them rolls really poorly on survival, splits the party, goes off on their own. And I had planned that the party would like find this cave and there would be a bunch of phase spiders in it, which are terrifying enemies and a really good challenge for a pretty powerful level six party. So they have the phase spider, but he's the only one there. So of course he gets captured. And then the party's like, well, now we have to track him and find him and rescue him before the face spiders eat him. And they're on this major time clock. So the party is like, well, we should just leave him. And I'm thinking in my head, why did I do this? I created this encounter that this one character could not possibly win. There's no way that this character with the tools that they had was going to be able to get away from six face spiders. They were just going to surprise attack them all to death. And this character was then going to be trapped and the party was probably going to be forced to leave them. So... I used my tool, which I think DMs don't use quite enough, but you don't want to overuse it, the DM retcon. I said, because that was where we ended the session. We Mm -hmm. ended with him in prison, the rest of the party being like, oh my God, we've got to go find him. They obviously, since they were there, knew where he was, but his characters, they didn't. And I just said, okay, we're slipping that. You guys had an NPC guide. He went there, he's gone. And now you guys don't have to feel like you need to chase through the wilderness in the middle of the night to try to find your ally only to then get attacked by face spiders and play what was not really going to be a very fun encounter. Face spiders can be a lot of fun, but it was just a pointless combat when these characters were on a clock. Right? They were going to get a long rest afterwards because this was a multi-J journey. So it wasn't draining their resources. It was just an encounter for an encounter's sake. So I learned two things from that. One is you can just retcon sometimes. Don't do it too much. But that was not a great ending. I said to my players afterwards, I was like, you know what, guys? That wasn't good. That wasn't fun. It's not going to be fun. 
That didn't happen. The NPC went that direction instead, and your guide NPC has disappeared. What do you guys want to do now? And then they had a real decision, because if one of your party members, one of your players, is caught in spiderwebs, and you know that, you're like, well, I need to go rescue them. Mm -hmm. Or even if one of your players, because then they can't play. This is in the middle of a wilderness. We're not going to be able to introduce a new character super easily. So they're like, well, we need to go get him. But instead, now they actually had a choice. Do we go after and try to save the NPC? Are we going to, is that going to take too much time? So instead of having it be a non-choice, I gave them agency and choice, right? And in the encounter, it made it a lot more interesting. They had a great role play scene for like 15, 20 minutes where the characters were arguing, do we care enough about this NPC to go look for them? Are they strong enough to survive on their own? That kind of thing. So you can retcon. And also... Don't just throw random encounters at your party for random encounters sake, especially if it's going to drain their resources. You know, that's a different thing. Having some build up encounters to a bigger encounter can be a lot of fun for a party and for players because then they have agency. And do we want to use our abilities to get through this encounter right now? Or do we need to save it for something later? But if you're just going to take a long rest afterwards, if it's not going to have any impact on the story, don't just throw a random encounter. No encounter should be truly random. They should all have a purpose. And whether that's draining their resources for a bigger fight, introducing some lore or history of the world, creating a dynamic combat situation that your players are really going to remember and engage with, with maybe an interesting creature or an enemy that might come back and return, that can be something really fun. But just having them like fight a bunch of face fighters to fight a bunch of space fighter, face fighters, say that five times fast, <laughs> isn't really that great. I like the point you made there. I'm kind of a big fan of the encounters or the the non-random random encounters, right? Where it's thought of ahead of time. You've said, okay, here are 10 things that could happen and each of them will add something to the story in some way. And then which of these 10 things is going to happen? And you can kind of randomize it that way. But that way, like you said, it's not just an encounter for an encounter's sake. Well, you just have to fight these goblins because the goblins showed up. You know, that's like you said, not super fun and it can be like it's just you trying to waste their time before you get to the good stuff, the stuff that they want to do, right? A hundred percent. One thing that I did in during a wilderness journey arc was I made some like random encounter tables. I never rolled on them. I kind of just chose the encounter for the moment. But one thing I had was that they came across a lamppost, just this iron lamppost in the middle of the woods, mm. classic Narnia style. And yeah. the lamppost had written on it, a light for those in dark places when all other lights go out. A total cop from the Lord of the Rings. And <laughs> they decided to spend the night by the lamppost. And when they did, I gave one of them like this kind of semi-prophetic dream. And then, then when they woke up, they had gotten a small boon. They could cast the daylight spell once, like a small charm of daylight. And it was a really cool thing for them to have. And they came across this lamppost and they did some investigation checks. And they're like, oh, who put this lamppost here? And it was a lot of fun for them. And that didn't necessarily have to be a combat encounter. A combat encounter I did on the same journey was the characters fought a frost giant and their two winter wolves. And the whole time they're fighting the frost giant, the frost giant is fighting them and yelling about how he's going to squash these like a bug, just like he's going to squash that purple skinned elf woman who drove him away from home and then the characters mm. like well who's that elf woman and then they were thinking they're enemies and they're like oh crap that's the necromancer the necromancer kicked this giant out and then suddenly this random encounter with a giant is tied into the major story the necromancers kick this giant out of their home 
maybe they're living in a, the giant's cave in the giant's area. Maybe they have access to the giant's treasure. So it took something that was just a combat encounter and turned it into something for the overarching story. Yeah, I love that. I think you did a very good job of that with that encounter. Speaking of encounters, what is one of your favorites that you've thrown at a party? And it could be monster, it could be NPC. You already mentioned the lamppost, but do any others come to mind that were really epic or interesting? I think the best one that I did, and I'm pulling up the name now, was I had my players go into a room. And this room had two things. Half of the room was underwater, and then there was a small raised platform at the end of the room that had a lever on it. And the players go, they have this whole debate of, do we pull the lever? Do we not pull the <laughs> lever? It's this great RP moment. They One of them finally gets frustrated and goes, I pull the lever. And nothing happens. It actually opened a door all the way at the end of the dungeon that was a trap. And then the only way for them when they got to the end of the dungeon, players would get stuck in this room with a water elemental that would continuously spawn. And the only way to get them out was to go back and re-pull the lever. So then they would have to run back through the whole dungeon to get to the lever. And what was great was that the closest door, the door on the opposite side of the room, the one they didn't come into, was actually a sentient door named Malafata Batihatian Kopesh III, the most sentient, Ruler of the room with four pillars, it that thirsts mightily, and maker of the bottles of the souls of the foolish. And this <laughs> door is the most pretentious, stuck-up door. It thinks it's the best door in the world, and it will only open if it's given a blood sacrifice. Or that's what it tells the party. Really, it just wants treasure, and it wants to start the negotiation out at blood sacrifice. And so then they'll give it treasure. So it's just this ridiculous, pretentious door. And the party, one of the paladin ghosts touches the door, gets turned into a bottle. So her soul gets imprisoned in a bottle, but she can still talk. So she's floating in the water in the bottle. They're trying to negotiate with the door to give them the paladin back. They negotiate successfully. They have this great RP. Then two of the players get stuck in that whirlpool room at the end of the dungeon. And suddenly they have to run back and the door is like, no, I will not open unless you can state my name, <laughs> this ridiculous name, all of his titles. And so I made the person running who was like, oh, my God, my friends are dying to water elementals that keep spawning. Open the damn door. And I made them roll intelligence checks to see if they actually remembered the name of the door. And they couldn't remember the name. So then they had to shout for another party member to come help them. Use sending to call across the dungeon. And was like, what was the name of the door? And so it was just this absolutely hilarious, ridiculous encounter that this door that they thought was super funny and they never thought they'd see again comes back and is incredibly relevant. It's like, you don't remember my name? It was great. They had an amazing time. Three players almost died. And <laughs> it was, this was like a super powerful level eight party with amazing magic items. And they were just sitting there like, tr two of them are just locked in this room trying to fight water elementals. One of them's trying to lift the door and getting their fingers crushed underneath it. Two of them are trying to remember the name. It was great. Oh man. That does sound like a lot of fun. I know sometimes it is the weird, quirky encounters that are the most fun for everyone, right? Like the killing blow on, 
some boss monster is pretty cool and you know some negotiation is cool but like the second coming of the door that's that's pretty hilarious oh yeah if you touch the door without giving it its proper tribute it turns you into a bottle it's the maker of the bottle of the souls of the foolish right all it says everything in the name <laughs> you're supposed to pay attention oh man <laughs> And of That's course so it says the name really fast. So they're like, what was your name? And then it says it really fast again. And it it's just great. I've mm. had some other amazing encounters. I've ran some pretty fantastic sieges. I ran a siege of a city where the players start off at the main gate and they're fighting against the siege of goblins, orcs, hobgoblins, and they're moving in on the city. But then it's not just that one encounter. Runners and messengers would come to the players and say, hey, there's a flashpoint. There was a dragon and it melted down a section of the wall and forces are going to come pouring in. We need one of you to come lead the defenses. Or we're trying to evacuate the civilians onto the ships and get them out of the city, but there's a riot going on. We need one of you to go over there. Two wizards flew on giant vultures over the city's defenses and are now burning down the warehouse district. We need some of you to lead soldiers there. So what the players got to do was as the defenders of the city, they got to go and take troops. So they had a certain amount of troops at the beginning. And then they would rather run to different flashpoints and take NPC troops with them. And I let them control the troops. So they had the troops stat block and they would use the swarms of troops and they had to figure out how to defend the city. So if we take too many troops away from the gates, well, then the gates are going to fall. And I set some rules at the beginning, like if you lose two flashpoints, then you lose the city. If the gate falls, you lose the city. And they had an evacuation timeline too. So they needed to go for a certain amount of rounds before the civilians were ready to evacuate. But then the mm -hmm. riot increased the amount of time they had to survive. And it was really fun. And this was not an encounter they were really supposed to be able to win. It was one where I really thought they were going to lose. I stacked the deck against them. And with really good strategy and really good troop management, my six players were able to win this encounter that they never, I never thought they were going to win. And it was just a super cool thing. They had so much fun organizing troops and being leaders. That is really cool. It's almost like a game within a game to uh, mm -hmm. to kind of make stuff like that happen. I love it when you can think of kind of like mini games with certain rules of engagement and criteria for success. So the next question is, what is one of your favorite memories of improvisation or role play or something like that from one of your games? So, you know, those were kind of more planned encounters that you talked about. So how about the other side of the coin? What's something that you just had to pull out of nowhere that really worked out really well for your game? So in one of the major cities that I had, my players were investigating a string of disappearance of various escorts throughout the city. There were a bunch of escorts who were going missing in the undercity. And, and there was a group, an organization called the Ebon Hand. And they were causing all kinds of problems in the city. And there were gang wars going on. So the party was basically neck deep in all this political drama. And they were recruited in the middle of all this drama by the ambassador from a vampire empire. Mm -hmm. And these two countries, the one that they were currently in and the vampiric empire had recently been at war about five years ago. It was a very, very bloody war that ended with the human empire being victorious. They pushed the vampiric invaders back behind the river 
and it was a pretty crushing defeat for the Empire Immortal. And so the ambassador of the Empire Immortal is in the city, and her name is Cassia Immortalia. And the players are recruited by her to participate in games for her amusement. She loves watching the arena in the city, loves the bloodshed, the violence, the strategy. So she recruits them because she finds them interesting. And so they go, they do these encounters, and then they go back and they ask her for information because she's an ambassador in the city. She knows a lot. Mm -hmm. And at one point, one of my players is talking to her and Cassia finds her really intriguing. Off the cuff, these characters start, the NPC and the players start flirting. And I, I'm like, well, she would definitely be interested in this. And it's kind of off the cuff. We, we kind of plot this narrative. They end up like going on a dinner and having a nice time. So this character that I didn't think would have like any potential for romantic involvement, like my thing was they're single, ended up creating this really cool role play moment where one of these characters who was like this stiff, upright paladin was questioning themselves because they were like this vampire NPC is super cool and I'm definitely into her. So I created this really cool dimension of role play. They ended up actually dating. And during one of the encounters, the vampire girlfriend shows up through like a teleportation portal in the middle of a battle and helps save them. And all of the players are like, woo, they're back together. And that was really all off the seat of my pants was role-playing all of that. I didn't plan any of that dialogue or anything. And it kind of just happened between this character and this NPC. Now, I do want to say for all those DMs out there, you know, I had made sure and talked with my players, you know, are you okay with NPC PC romance, PC PC romance? Like, are we okay with this? And they had all agreed they're all okay with PC NPC romance. So especially this one player. So it was a lot of fun but just make sure that your party is okay with that. Yeah, that's a great point. I know a few of my guests have brought up consent in gaming and making sure that it's okay with your party, you know, especially sensitive topics like this, you know, you just want to make sure that you're not crossing any lines for anybody. So good on you to make sure that they're okay with that. So let's make a jump now to the creator side of you. And obviously DMing is creation, but I really want to dig into the content that you've created how did you decide from making the jump from Magic the Gathering to DMing and then from DMing to, you know what, I really like designing these characters, these subclasses, you know, all this stuff, and I want to start sharing it with people. You know, walk us through that journey. So, like many DMs, I was putting a lot of work into my campaigns. And the thing that really I first started sharing with the world was magic items. I love magic items. I'm a huge fan of them. I love, my players will tell you, I'm a very generous god when it comes to magic items. I love giving them really cool, fun magic items that not necessarily are just great in combat, but also give them role play potential. So I was making a lot of really cool magic items. In Magic the Gathering, there are these equipments called the swords. They're, they're based on the color pair. So they're sword of fire and ice, sword of light and shadow, sword of feast and famine. And so I statted all of those as magic items and I let my players, you know, purchase them or win them in contests. And they had a really great time and they were like, well, the magic items you're giving us are so cool. And so we were spending a lot of time making these magic items and making homebrewed monsters for my encounters and doing a lot of creative world building. And I was like, well, if I'm putting all of this work into it, I want to share that out there with the world. You know, I, I DM for free and I thought it would be really cool to try to get some of my products out there and maybe see if I could turn my hobby into something that I could 
not be a, not necessarily a job. I don't think I want to do D&D as a full-time job, but it's something, you know, as a little side hustle. So I decided I was going to start taking some of the things that I made and refining them and professionalizing them. And I took that first leap with Dungeons and Dan's. He's a great creator on DMs Guild. You should 100% check out his stuff. He has a lot of great free stuff out there. I'd really encourage you to tip if you have the means. He makes some amazing content. And I had never done DMs Guild before. And I asked him, hey, would you like to collab with me? And he said, yes. And what we ended up doing was I worked a lot on a subclass for a Yuki Ona. It's also known as the Snow Woman. It's a classic creature from Japanese mythology. And I love Japanese mythology. So I made I worked on this warlock subclass, and then Dungeons and Dance, who makes a lot of monsters, worked a lot on the creation of the Yukiona monster. And so then we paired them together, and I wrote a bunch of lore, and we released this small little supplement that has a CR seventeen stat block and a warlock subclass, and a really good amount of lore. So that we released that for free on DM Skilled and. The reception was really positive. I mean, I didn't make a ton of money off of it. I haven't made a ton of money off of any tabletop RPG stuff, but it was a lot of fun. And I just decided, well, I've made all these really cool sub custom subclasses for my players. Let's refine and tune them and make some more and put them out there. And that's kind of how the journey got started. It's funny how that happens. You know, it's really just one small step into something for you to realize, hey, I really like this. I really enjoy it. I want to keep doing it. So you have seven different titles available on DM Skilled now. Tell us about your publication process and checklist. You know, is there a process you like to go through to, you know, find the right artists, work on the layout, get play testers, that kind of thing? So normally I play test almost all of my stuff myself. Mm -hmm. I occasionally, like, I do give it out to other DMs who are my friends to play test as well. And I love getting their feedback on that. But mostly it's me who's the foremost play tester. At first I was doing all of my own writing and editing and layout. Mm -hmm. But I rapidly realized I'm the ideas guy. I write the lore. I make the stat blocks. I come up with the concept. I'm a horrible editor. <laughs> and I will drive myself crazy doing layout. I can do it. I have some pretty decent GM binder skills and working knowledge of HTML. But I'm not an expert by any means. And I got tired of beating my head against the wall. And so what I decided to do was I decided to find other artists and creators. I'm in the DMs Guild Creative Discord, and that's a great place to find people. I've also just met a lot of people on Twitter for really small releases where it's either free or I'm charging like only a dollar, dollar ninety-five, something I'm not expecting to make a lot of money on at all. Sometimes what I'll do is I've had some people on Twitter who volunteered to edit for me. These are really small things like 500 to a thousand words, mm -hmm. very Couple small. pages. Yeah, and I'll maybe a page, page and a half, and I'll give them a free copy of the product for editing, you know, for these smaller things. For bigger stuff, I usually hire an editor and I give them a percentage of the royalties. I would love to be able to do flat payments. That would be a dream. But with DMs Guild, that's not really feasible. With drive through with what the Kickstarter that I'm going to do, I am able to pay a flat rate plus a combination of royalties which is a lot better for the lot better for creators. I mean, I mm -hmm. would love as a writer who has written projects such as Encounters in Ravenloft and The Withering of Rossville that I was not the project manager for. I wasn't paid a flat rate. I was paid a percentage of the royalties. 
which obviously I would love a flat rate. You know, it would be wonderful if that could happen. But the reality is, especially when you're starting out, that that's just not feasible. Even the best selling ones don't make an outrageous amount of money. And so paying someone a flat rate is really hard. And that gets into art. Art is so difficult. This is the hardest part of the creation process. We as tabletop RPG gamers, we expect a high standard of art in our products. This goes for indie RPGs to full-on D&D 5e fanatics. We expect a high quality of art. And art is so much more expensive than works. Astronomically more expensive. And that's why you see a lot of D&D stuff go through Kickstarter. is because that's one of the few ways that you can afford to pay for enough high-quality art. So if you're not using Kickstarter, I would encourage you to use stock art options. If you can't do your own art, which I can't, I use stock art options. And one thing that I do often is I'll just ask creators. I see something really cool that I like on Twitter, a really cool image that I think would be perfect for a subclass that I'm doing or inspires me to make a subclass. I'll ask the artist, you know, hey, can I use this in my DM skill product? And in exchange, I'll give you a percentage of the royalties, maybe 5%, 10%, depends on if I'm using it on the cover as a cover or not. Oftentimes, I found that artists will either, they're not upset that you asked, or they'll say yes, because using art in a DM skill product, they don't lose any rights to it. All art published in DM skill products, you lose no rights to. So really, for artists, it's it's just making money off of art you've made. It goes into the product, and then they'll get a percentage of the royalties. They never get money from me. DM skill pays them their own royalties. So there's no oh. like transfer of money between par- parties. Mm, that's just, nice. They get paid by DM Guild, same yeah. as me. A lot of times when, if you explain that to an artist and you're just like, I don't gain any rights to this. All you're letting me do is use something you've already made. And it's just investing your art, investing your money or investing your art and then making some money from it. So I've had, I have a relationship with a couple of artists who I've used a ton of their art and, you know, I've given them up to 25%, half of my cut of the royalties to use, you know, five or six pieces of their art. So that's what I found. If you're going to try to go for the DMs guild route with art, you got to keep those commissions low. It's really hard to commission artwork at a fair price for artists. And that's why the Kickstarter route, I feel like is a lot more feasible. Yeah. Let's go ahead and segue to the Kickstarter stuff then. So you mentioned a little bit earlier that your latest project is called Professor Gilroy's Guide to Fae. And that's your Kickstarter that is launching soon. So Give us some ideas about what to expect from that, you know, where the idea came from, and then how soon do you hope to launch it? Professor's Gilmer's Guide to Fae will be live when you guys are listening to this. You guys should definitely check it out on Kickstarter slash Professor Gilroy's Guide to Fae. It is a collection of 50 creatures inspired by Celtic and Slavic mythology. So I'm a big fan of Celtic mythology. I'm Irish myself. So, you know, I got told a lot of Irish folktales as a kid, you know, from different books that my parents would read. Mm. And I've always been really enamored with the lore and the mythology of the Celts. There's some amazing, really cool fae creatures that I thought aren't in D&D. We don't have Selkies or Vila from Slavic mythology, those things haven't really been stat-blocked before. Creatures like brownies and mm. the other side, like a brownie that turns into a bogger and a bogger that could turn into a brownie isn't something that's ever been stat-blocked in D&D before. 
creatures like the Ore, the Four Winds, or the Wandering Man, or even things like Grindylo, creatures that people know from properties like Harry Potter, where they're using a lot of Celtic creatures. And so I decided, well, these are creatures that I want to showcase. These are amazing creatures with incredible lore. And so what Professor Gilroy's Guide is, is it's taking 50 of these amazing creatures and it's pairing it with a field guide style art. So that's going to be black and white sketchbook style, which I am a huge sucker for. I think it's absolutely beautiful. I feel like it's very evocative of what a monster manual should be like. And this book is written from the perspective of Professor Gilroy. So a little different than your classic monster manual. The goal is that reading it is feeling like you're listening to Professor Gilroy lecture. And he's this eccentric character that I created, one of my own NPCs that I use in my own campaigns. And I thought, well, this guy knows a lot about Faye. Let's write a book from his perspective. And so every monster stat block in the book is going to not just have beautiful art, detailed lore, and interesting mechanical stat blocks. I'm also including six encounter hooks and monster tactics for every creature. And the goal of this is for you to be able to take these creatures and put them into your games incredibly easily. I am never not DM. I'm always the DM. I know how much work goes into DMing. So my goal is to make it easier for you. You know, in the middle of combat, thinking of monster tactics is kind of difficult. But if you've got a little bit of a guideline, obviously you can deviate it from however you want. But you can have some guidelines, some rails to help keep your combats more interesting. And encounter hooks to help easily blend these creatures into your stories. And it's really my design philosophy with all of these creatures. The tagline of the product is more than just monsters. And the reason for that is I feel that oftentimes in D&D, we just have giant hit point sacks, and then we butcher them to death with our swords and fireballs. But I wanted to create creatures that aren't just meant to be killed by the party. They can create interesting RP moments. They can be allies to the party, quest givers. And so that was one of the reasons why I created, wanted to create this book is because I wanted to create something that was more than just monsters. I wanted to create legends that you can bring to life in your games. Yeah, that's very cool. It reminds me a little bit of Volo's Guide to Monsters, just like the field guide style idea, but I love the uh, the sketch idea. I'm also a sucker for the the sketches, and so I'm excited to see how it turns out. We have an absolutely amazing team working on it. I have some fantastic artists, great editors, awesome layout, really experienced people. This is my first Kickstarter, but I'm I'm really thinking it's going to go well. I mean, it's mostly written by now. Design and writing is you know, two thirds of the way done and it hasn't even launched yet. And then as soon as it launched, that's when I need the money to pay artists. And that's when we'll do art and layout. Anything else to mention about some of your uh, projects or your DMs Guild work before we wrap up? I would just say... I don't want to necessarily, I've talked a lot about some of the products I've released yeah. and about Professor Gilroy's, but what I just want to say, if you're thinking of taking the leap onto DMs Guild, just remember DMs Guild, when you release on there, you do lose the right to your IP. You can't publish it anywhere, I think, for like 70 years or something. If you're publishing on DMs Guild, I would encourage you to really only publish stuff that's specific to Wizards of the Coast IP. So when you publish on DMs Guild, you can use Wizards IP. You can use Straw from Curse of Straw. You can use any of the D&D modules and mysteries that you want and create content for them or for the Forgotten Realms. Mm -hmm. And 
Wizards of the Coast's IP is really powerful. Lots of people love to buy stuff for Curse of Strahd or Ravenloft or Eberron. So if you can make stuff specific and use that IP, that's really good to leverage. If you're thinking about creating something that doesn't use Wizards of the Coast's IP, I'd really encourage you to check out Drive Through RPG, where you can release other stuff. Or if you've got some experience and are raring to go trying out a Kickstarter, that's a great way to fund. You can do very small Kickstarters, $1,000, $2,500. And there was a really cool one called the Tome of Wands that funded. It was only a $2,500 Kickstarter, and it's raised almost $5,000 now. And it's just a book of a bunch of magic wands, right? And you can create smaller ideas like that. But definitely publish some stuff, get some ideas first, build a team, and then jump into Kickstarter if you're, if you're wanting to create original worlds and original content. I remember I'm not a I'm not yet a lawyer, uh, so don't take my like IP and copyright law. Obviously, you should do your own research into that. But my general advice: if it's not Wizards of the Coast IP, I wouldn't release it on DM Skill. That's good advice. You're the one who's done it more than me, so you should know. <laughs> All right, so kind of winding down to the end here. Then, what are your parting words of wisdom and encouragement to new and aspiring and also old and jaded DMs to make the game fun and interesting for your players? I think making a fun game is about expectations. It's about what kind of campaign do you want to run and what kind of campaign do your players want to play? And there is no shame in somebody is interested in being a player at your table. You are playing a high fantasy dungeon crawler. Nothing wrong with that style of play. They want a role-play heavy game. There's no reason for that you shouldn't be able to say no. So at the very beginning, when you're deciding what kind of campaign do I want to run and your players are, you know, what kind of campaign you want to play, I think it's really good to have a talk with your players and discuss what do they want to play. Do they want an RP, you know, if we're going to just use Wizard of the Coast modules, do mm -hmm. they want a more RP heavy campaign? Well, then something like Waterdeep Dragon Heist would be really good. If they don't want something super grimdark, then something like maybe Lost Minds of Fandelver or possibly maybe a Theros or Ravnica campaign rather than Curse of Strahd. If they want gothic horror or they want a darker, more serious, more dangerous campaign, going with something like Tomb of Annihilation or a campaign in Ravenloft would be amazing. Set expectations at the beginning. What kind of campaign do you want to DM? And your players will, you know, they'll tell you, oftentimes we always talk about, you know, you want to know what your play, what kind of game your players want to play. Do they want to play a heavy RP campaign? Do they want to play a heavy combat campaign? But you should also think as the DM, what kind of game do I want to DM? Do you want to be playing a complex political campaign? That's going to require a lot more prep on your part because you're going to have to know for various political factions and stuff like that. If that's mm -hmm. something you're, you're down to create and that's what your players want, then that's awesome. But if you want to play a high fantasy, high magic campaign and your players are interested in steampunk, you don't necessarily have to DM for those players. And I know we always want to DM for our friends, but it's about understanding what the expectations are at the beginning. And maybe you make a compromise in there. Maybe you're like, okay, well, I wanted to do more high magic. You guys wanted to do more steampunk. Well, Eberron kind of has both of those elements. So maybe we'll try to do something in Eberron together. A few guests have definitely mentioned different, you know, aspects of the make sure to communicate with everyone before you start. But you brought up a great point that 
you should be thinking about what's going to be fun for you to run as well, right? Like you said, if you want to do a ton of prep, then maybe you go political. But if you want to make it easy, not necessarily easy, but you know, prep different things that, that might be easier for you to prep. Maybe you do that dungeon crawl and uh, there's nothing wrong with saying what you want to run as a DM and then finding something that matches with what your players expect. Most recently, I actually started a new campaign with my players about four weeks ago. What we did beforehand was we had a big sit down. We had finished our last campaign. I was like, what kind of campaign do you guys want to run? And they were saying, you know, we want lots of role play, lots of role play. That's what we want. I'm totally fine with DMing lots of role play. But Mm -hmm. then I was able to set up some stories and some encounters. They said, we want more of an open world. They don't want necessarily a main overarching story. They wanted to be able to go and pick up different plot threads in different areas because the adventure they played before was very linear and they enjoyed it. But they said, you know, we want to try something a little different. I said that was totally cool. I didn't mind something like that at all. So that's what, you know, we did. We had those expectations, those talks. And so far, my players are absolutely loving the campaign. Yeah, that's all it takes, a little communication. So we've talked about your Kickstarter that's coming out. And we've talked about some of the stuff that you've built for DMs Guild. Where can listeners find your work and interact with you on social media? You can find me almost exclusively on Twitter. I'm at NeverNotDM or on Reddit at you slash NeverNotDM. I post a lot of stuff on the Unearthed Arcana subreddit. So you can Mm. find me there. I'm pretty active on that. And if you're looking to support me, well, obviously you can back my Kickstarter. It's going to be awesome, y'all. I promise. Or you guys can check out my work on DMs Guild. Uh, There's a link in my Twitter bio or on DMs Guild. You can search NeverNotDM and you'll find all of the work that I've created I have some awesome stuff that I've written for Ravenloft, a lot of interesting and dynamic subclasses, and some cool different supplements with magic items in them. So I really think that you guys can find a lot of cool stuff. If you want to support me monetarily, check out my DM skill, back to Kickstarter. Or if you just want to hear more from me and get lots of, I release tons of free stuff on Twitter, monsters, magic items, NPCs, all that stuff. I release that on Twitter. So you can just follow me there. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for joining me, Ben. It's been a lot of fun. I've been looking forward to this one for a while just because, you know, your your reputation precedes you with the the cool stuff that you've made. And so really excited to see what Professor Gilroy's is about. And I'll make sure to put all of the links to your DMs Guild and whatnot in the episode notes so everyone can go check it out. But thanks so much for joining me. I've had an awesome time. I've also had a great time. Thank you so much for having me, Derek. Thanks for listening to How Not to DM. A couple of quick announcements and then we'll get to our featured DM War Story of the Week. If you have any questions for past guests on my show, join my Discord server. It's a great place to start a conversation about running the game with a lot of knowledgeable people. For 10% off your next Impulse Dice purchase, visit adventuredice.ca and use my code HN2DM at checkout. They're based in Canada, so take advantage of the great exchange rate if you're from the States. Links to Adventure Dice and Discord are in the episode notes. Let's get to our DM war story. Today's submission comes from Bardic Inspiration. That's Bardic underscore inspo, and the O is a zero on Twitter. This story is titled, Knock Them Dead, a cautionary tale for audience volunteers. (laughs) Bardic Inspiration is D&D Shakespeare style, and Shakespeare loves a play within a play. The Magical Cane Band, one of our parties, is a traveling performance troupe. They've gotten up to all sorts of onstage shenanigans with magic special effects, and they often use their art to charm my NPCs to their cause. (laughs) They once got a four-star review from a dragon, but that's not my story. The assassination of Edwin Banks was the single most flabbergasting experience I've ever had as a DM. The short version, the players made a plan, 
it worked and that never happens but also it worked better than planned so the bard sets up a simple play for some rich clients about a princess who charms a dragon they asked for an audience volunteer and charmed their very grumpy target's boss to convince him to go on stage. The players hand this up and get lots of laughs for the onlookers. Meanwhile, their rogue awaits hidden and invisible, lining up a poison sneaky bow shot. The crew telepathically set a cue word that will signal the shot, darkness. A player says the word, and then our warlock casts darkness on the audience. What followed was absolute chaos alongside perfectly executed skill checks. No one could see the stage. Guards around the perimeter rolled terribly on their perception. Rogue one-shot crits the target. Artificer disguises self to look like him while the bard hides the corpse. Warlock drops darkness just as the players assume climactic poses for their story's big finish. Dragon Girl freeing herself from captivity as Bloodhunter and Paladin do acrobatic dance routine. Wild applause. Artificer stomps off, still disguised as the target. The party gets paid well for the show and leaves with hidden corpse. I stare at the battle map I was certain I'd be using that day, fade to black. Yeah, Adam, no one can uh, can do a cinematic story like you can, so solidarity, my friend. I think that all of us DMs have experienced something like this where our party has just totally trampled on all of our hopes and dreams with their incredible schemes. But at the same time, it's really fun to watch this kind of thing unfold, so... I'm glad that you shared it. It definitely is a war story, and I would have loved to have been there. Number one, to see your party's looks of triumph, and number two, to see the existential dread on your face as it all unfolded. So, thanks for sharing. As always, my intro and outro music is by my good friend Torin, aka Mr. Tape. Make sure to check him out on Spotify. And until next time, roll some at 20s for me.